Hey, superstars, welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today's pre-show preamble is brought to you by Sunday. This is my Sunday version of myself. Today, I am joined by my dear friend who I've known for many, 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 many years, Eric Coppolino. Now, I first started my relationship with Eric back in like, I don't know, 2006, 2007, um, where I knew Eric primarily as an astrologer. He had, as he still has, the Planet Waves website. I was a contributor way back when. And while, of course, Eric is like a rock-solid investigative journalist, in my mind, I have tended to put him in the category of astrologer. Now, when I reached out to Eric to invite him on the show, it was to talk about star stuff and how a lot of what's going on uh, in the news and in culture relates. And I didn't realize that he had recently shot to fame for busting a bunch of fraud around the larger Rona narrative. And so it was that our conversation took an unexpected turn for the deep diving, for the um, journalism, I don't want to, I, I don't know how to, how to make that the right word here. Um, basically, this is a conversation that the YouTube thought police probably aren't going to be very happy with. So today's show is not airing on YouTube. If you want to see the video versions, you can find it at BitChute, you can find it at Odyssey. What I really recommend is finding it on my locals channel, which brings me to my next point, uh, the way that my show is organized is that the first half is avail available for free on all of the podcast platforms and the usual video platforms. In today's case, as I said, that's BitChute and that's Odyssey because it's not worth it for me to get a strike on my YouTube channel. All of my videos are always posted on Locals. The second half of this podcast and all of my podcast conversations is available for paid supporters only on both my locals and my Patreon communities. Those addresses are dannycats.locals.com and patreon.com slash dannycats. Now I am inviting you, if you are getting any value whatsoever out of my podcast, out of my videos, be they words are matter, planetary service announcements, uh, these interviews that I'm doing, gener general kvetching kind of rants, then I urge you to give back by supporting me on one or both of those platforms because and is just so much more expansive and fun than or. The path of the content creator slash journalist in 2022 is not an easy one. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to gloss it over with Cherry Mary Sunshine Quantum Languaging because I want you guys to understand what it's like. So as a professional journalist who's been systematically pushed out of the legacy media while at the same time being deplatformed, shadow banned, censored, and systematically targeted by various big tech platforms, it really takes a lot for me to keep on keeping on. And what is going to allow me to keep on keeping on, which is cheeky code for continuing to put out videos and podcasts, is your support. Your support is really the big, the big piece um, that makes a difference between whether I can continue to do this or not continue to do this. So for as little as $5 a month, 
you get access to all of my second half conversations, oodles of bonus content, including unpublished essays, chapters, free discounts on, uh, that didn't really make sense, did it? Free discounts, um, discounts on webinars, workshops, live events, um, monthly drop-ins with myself and the tried opportunities for one-on-one -on -one drop ins with me that's on patreon so check out both the platforms to fill into which one or both feels most aligned for you donate what you can feel free to stretch yourself <laughs> and again you can find the second half of this conversation with eric coppolino and all of my awesome conversations on patreon and on locals before we jump into it I'm reminding you to click that click that subscribe button to like to share to comment your comments go a long way in convincing the algorithm to give me more reach and more visibility. I'm also reminding you to click that little bell so that you can be notified whenever I post a new video. Okay, that does it for our Sunday preamble. Buckle up. Let's dive into my rollicking conversation with Eric Coppolino. All right, doll, what are we doing? Hi, nice to see you. We're chatting. We're just having a casual chat between friends about the sham show and the stars and whatever else we want to talk about. Okay. Awesome. Well, it's been an exciting couple of months. So tell me how we begin. Tell me, do you like introduce me or something like that? No, I'll do that after, um, just so it's not quite as contrived and staged. What are you drinking? Tea, ordinary tea with cream from a farm oh nice a local deal ronnie brook the closest we can get without you know unhomogenized type minimally pasteurized nice awesome right. um well eric i haven't i don't know that we've actually ever seen one another even though we've talked many times throughout the years mm -hmm. and i know that you've been tracking what's going on as i've been tracking what's going on and when i reached out to talk to you i hadn't realized that you just skyrocketed to fame so can you break it down for us on on, on which my work on the lockdown and claimed pandemic yes so i i saw you recently on Stu peters mm -hmm. and i know there are two big stories that you broke but i guess i'm kind of wondering like how you even got in i mean i know you've always been a journalist so was it totally natural to just tackle the the rona situation head on well besides just being a journalist my specialty is corporate scientific fraud oh so i i did this for many years before i ever thought of being an astrologer okay and um and i've uh, i've i've put together some of that old older stuff on my substack but basically i'm a specialist in the concealment of the history of dioxin and pcbs by monsanto ge and westinghouse and then collusion by the epa and the fda and the cdc in these incidents okay and how did you get pulled into that realm of expertise it happened twice once when i was a, a college sophomore at suny buffalo 
I was the features editor of the campus magazine called The Current. This is around 1983. And I read in the Buffalo News that uh, that they were going to resettle the Love Canal neighborhood of Niagara Falls. Now, Love Canal neighborhood is a thousand homes built on 23,000 tons of chemical and nuclear waste. That's that's 23 tons of waste for every home. Isn't that nice? Whoa, so and, nice. And this and so, is lovely, right? And you can still buy a, a, a cheap house there. And um, they, the people who did this basically just sold this chemical dump to the Niagara Falls School District. And, and then in the 70s, when a lot of things were coming out, somebody named Lois Gibbs figured out that the reason all these people were sick was they were living on a toxic waste dump. Mm-hmm. And, and so began one of three major dioxin wars in, in the late 1970s. One, of course, was Vietnam, mm-hmm. Agent Orange, the guys were coming back, all having been sprayed with or having sprayed and gotten exposed, the stuff called Agent Orange, which had dioxin in it. And, and then uh, this incident in Times Beach, Missouri, where someone sprayed waste oil on the road, on the dirt roads to keep the dust down, and then the Love Canal incident. Di- dioxin is not a manufactured product. It's a byproduct of, of the chemical manufacturing industry where chlorine is involved. Okay. So uh, it will be in paper and pulp processing. It'll be in... Uh, all kinds of chemicals that use chlorine, probably the least of which is chlorine bleach, because that's a fairly simple process. It's when they're making it into these um, kind of liquid plastic sludges and all this weird stuff that they and and or or brewing it into chemicals like um, santafine, the active ingredient in Lysol, that they create this dioxin stuff mm-hmm. and so this was a huge issue and lois got the love canal neighborhood evacuated but then about five years later the state was back trying to resell the homes mm-hmm. to unsuspecting citizens who wouldn't have lois gibbs to inform them of right. where they were and to do things like take the EPA officials hostage and call up the White House and have President Carter declared federal emergency. This has actually happened. Okay. And, and you know, now, nowadays there'd be SWAT teams in, on these little streets with salt box houses. But in the 70s, the president would declare an emergency, and he did. So five years later, I showed up in Buffalo, read about this, and, and the Buffalo News obviously wasn't doing the story, so I did the story about the proposed resettlement, recapping the whole history. And that was my first introduction. I met Lois. I got a lot of early instruction at age 19. I was a college sophomore. I was ahead of, a little bit ahead of my class. And then did a lot of other journalism for the next seven years. And then one day, a bunch of transformers exploded on the college campus where I had my little news service. I had a news, I'd set up a news service. I'd networked all the state and city university campuses into a news service called Student Leader News Service. And we were without the internet, without the internet, doing things like mailing things and faxing them and faxing. We had a fax machine. It was big when we got the fax machine from Radio Shack. Mm 
because we'd have to go to we'd have to go to this local copy shop and fax things for a buck a page. Can you imagine, <laughs> students? And um, um, where was I? Oh, PCB explosions. Um, and once again, nobody was really looking carefully at what happened. All this electrical equipment in, in, in six buildings, but really 22 buildings, leaked, exploded, blew up, caught fire, ruptured, and basically sent a chemical plume going through the earth, the air, the ground, and the buildings. And the state of New York was saying, honky-dory, let's just put everyone back right back in the dormitories. Whoa! But I lived there, I was there, and I had a news apparatus set up, and I had reporters and cameras and computers and the ability to do the work. And I was familiar with what I learned from Lois. So I remembered, even though it was you know six or seven years earlier, and I started covering this and started networking around the country and to some extent around the world to find the experts that I needed to help me understand exactly the implications of what had happened. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, in a way like COVID, really people don't want to tell the truth so much about the issue. And, and often when they get enough information to know the truth, they flip and they go to the other side. This is not something I've commented on with, with COVID yet, but we see a lot of this where people get to a certain threshold of information they understand the problems of the virus existence, they understand, and then they flip. And the same is true with PCBs. So most people get to a certain level of knowledge and then they join Monsanto, basically. They take, they start using Monsanto's arguments. I didn't do that. I persisted for a year uh, covering the story. Uh, I was arrested, I won my case. Wait, 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 wait. why were you arrested? I was arrested for attempting to interview the college president and vice presidents with the with my hippie video crew outside the administration building. And uh, well, it was I, I was I was the very Jerry Garcia looking at the time hippie, and then I had some kind of punk, a kid with a video camera, basically okay. nothing special. And I tend to be a polite person particularly in adversarial situations i i really i really try to take the um the, the sweet approach to uh to the most confrontational journalistic i mean i i can do whatever i need to do but i'm delicate and and i was very kind to the college president and the vice president and i and all i said was have you actually tested the ventilation units in these dormitories i knew they hadn't mm -hmm. and they uh, refused to answer, and uh, the college president got, who knew me quite well, got all bent out of shape, and they had a vote and declared me persona non grata. They threw me off the campus. Whoa, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, I, it, the story was almost dead at that point, and then suddenly it had all this new life. And I was in all the daily papers and all the weekly papers, and, uh, and it, so, so I, I sued them. I took them to federal court. Uh, so that that went on, and uh, it was that was brewing. And right around the, right around the same time, I had I had uh, a lawyer who'd taken care of my case when I was arrested for for journalism by refusing to leave a faculty meeting where they were going to talk about this. 
Uh, and I, I asked him if he knew any journalists, and he sent me to this guy at the New York Times, which at the time had had some integrity left, Mike Weinrip. And so Weinrip did a B, page B1 story about me. So I, I went from being, well, my news service was fairly well respected in, in the state government community. I mean, it was good journalism. I, mean, I, I, I previously had edited trade newsletters, you know, these things that were like 250 bucks a year that Seagram's buys 100 subscriptions, this kind of thing for every executive gets their own subscription and all that. So so I, I knew how to do these industry newsletters, which was the, mo the model. It was kind of like Substack for grownups mm -hmm. by people who actually understand journalism. It, Substack it's, uh, has become kind of a cesspool. But um, so I knew how to do these trades and I did them and and combined it with kind of an AP style writing and classic investigative reporting and um, and I and I started getting traction on the story and I got the attention of lawyers out in Nevada who were suing Monsanto GE and Westinghouse and because of this flip problem because of this problem of, of journalists just being taken off the story or deciding that GE must be right or something like that they recognized a real journalists when they saw one mm -hmm. and so i was checked out very carefully by these guys there was kind of a lawyer case manager named uh, bill snyder this guy with this super thick hoosier accent from indiana and he'd call me up every day and you know make sure that i'd had breakfast and uh and tell me little stories and tell me about you know the work he'd done and he he wasn't an admitted attorney but he was law trained and he was managing the case on behalf of the other lawyers so that was his that was his role and and um and one day he said you're going to get a fedex of documents and uh, you know if you have any questions let us know and do whatever you want with it he said what we'd like is we'd like to have a three-page we'd like to have a page one article in the las vegas sun maybe you should do it maybe you should give them a do whatever you want call us if you have questions so I get these documents and basically the documents are a representative sample of the history of Monsanto GE and Westinghouse conspiring to poison the whole world. Whoa. FedEx about that thick. They just sent me a sample. And of course, um, I was interested in the story having done this thing, having subsisted, uh, scratching out a living doing the story for a, more than a year. And I pitched it to the Las Vegas Sun and got a three-day page one copyright front page series in the Las Vegas Sun. That's awesome. And then from there, did it for many, many, many other places. Of course, all the stuff I did for that was applicable locally for the places I was writing for locally. So I, and I, I never put this issue down. I remained friends with some of the key people, my friend Carol Van Strum out in Oregon, who taught me document collecting, mm -hmm. which is an art form in itself, how, how to contain, how to like read, understand, annotate, file, maintain a document collection, what it means, uh, this thing, but we kind of have to memorize the whole record. Like I can quote line and verse from articles that I've first work with 30 years ago. So I, I did this and I and I was involved and I kept my collection the whole time. And I, I was, we've just moved it to a better, uh, better storage facility in the past few weeks. Nice. And when COVID happened, I understood the issues well enough to know one thing in particular, which is that I had to investigate the test. <laughs> I didn't, 
I, I believe there was a pandemic or I accepted it on the precautionary principle. I didn't cry foul. My early coverage is evidence of that. I entered the story as a homeopath, not as a journalist. At first, I was interested in, okay, what if people are sick? What do I do? Do I treat them? What, what, what supplies do I need? And so um, I got one of the last orders into Hahnemann Laboratories in, in uh, San Rafael, home of the Grateful Dead, and also um, to uh, Paul Stamets, host defense mushroom. So I got a case of agaricon, which was allegedly, you know, I have a buddy who's a midwife on Vashon. So she was coaching me. And, and we all believe that we, we all took the precautionary principle. Assume the worst until the data comes back. And for me, that meant learning how to treat people. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about homeopathy, but anybody who's even meekly, meekly trained in homeopathy knows that the Spanish flu, so-called, was no match for homeopaths. Mm -hmm. Homeopaths cured everyone mm -hmm. who was not poisoned by aspirin, like a bottle of aspirin a day they were giving people. Whoa. Whatever the hell it was, the allopaths were, were killing people with aspirin. And so there are the legends of these uh, ships coming back from World War I with the, the channels and the passageways and the ships running with body fluids, except where the ship's physician was a homeopath. They had none of that illness. Everybody made it home. So if you got lucky and, you're, and the ship you were going ship, shipped home on was a homeopathic physician, you were fine. So every homeopath knows this. Everyone, we, it's a part, it's, a, it's an essential chapter in the history. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't especially worried. And, and I figured, okay, a little mushroom here and there, that won't harm, you know, the host defense. Paul Stamets, he's a good guy. Well, if you know him, you love him. Everybody wants to go for the mushroom walk with him. Not very many people do. And so I was never worried about getting sick, particularly because I had all the knowledge I needed. And as a journalist, I was briefed on now what I realized was kind of a propaganda briefing on bird flu in 2006. My first time going to the European Commission as an accredited journalist mm -hmm. was to a bird flu briefing mm -hmm. in one of these rooms to make the United Nations envious that looked like it's out of the Starfleet Training Academy with four tiers of mezzanines for translators and the whole thing, the whole thing looking like straight out of Star Trek. And they, they were priming us with influenza propaganda at that point. They were now that I now that I've seen now that we've lived through this. So by and by, when COVID happened, um, I did the medical work. I contacted every homeopath and herbalist that I knew of. Uh, to, to find out what to do naturally. I've got a lot of doctors in my clientele, mm -hmm. naturopathic types. And so- And when you say clientele, astrology clientele? My astrology clientele, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so for my journalism work, I know all of the, I, 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 ha, I can network, network through the science community and I know how to interview a scientist. Because mm -hmm. that's all you do as a PCB reporter is you interview government officials and scientists, then you go back to the government official, then you interview the scientist, and then you, that's all, all day long. I've, I've got like a trunk full of cassette tapes of these interviews. I don't know what to do with <laughs> a trunk. It's crazy. It's like two, 300 of these tapes. And um, so then I began the COVID story and I knew to do the test because 
every last thing came back to the test, every claim of sickness, of a death, of a mitigation measure, anything and everything came back to this test, right? Remember this, right? Oh, cases breaking out everywhere. This is all the test. It's a PCR test. Right. And so um, it, it took me a year to unravel that. And I, 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 cut, I chased up numerous other issues as ancillary to the test. But my primary focus was, what is this test testing for? How does it work? And does it work? And it turns out when you really look carefully at the test, you, you find out one salient fact. It's a matching test. The PCR, for all of its history and alleged perfection, basically says, you know, I don't have two guitar picks, <laughs> but uh, here, uh, is this uh, this silver and that silver? Well, if you want to find out if that's silver, you got to have silver in the machine. And then it says, does that match? Yes or no? That's it. <laughs> that's all the COVID test does. But it can go below the limit of detection and amplify fragments of silver that are too small to detect by normal chemical analysis or by any other way. And so it has that little special quality to it is that it, it can go below the detection limit and find single molecules. Mm -hmm. To do that, it has to have molecules of samples of the molecules of the thing that it's looking for. Mm -hmm. And when you find that, when you find out what the fuck those are, what has it got in there? What is that little A, B, G, B, B, D, A, G, B? you find out that it's actually not a virus. Mm. You find out it's not looking for a virus. You find out that it's looking for essentially random computer code. Oh. So it's not dealing up. in analog, is it dealing in analog or is it? No, there's nothing analog about it except the thing they shove up people's nose. But the, the, as soon as they take the thing out of people's nose, <clears throat> they mix it up with monkey cells and calf cells and cancer cells and antibiotics and preservatives and food, you know, like calf blood for food, and they make this mess. And then they say, presto, a virus, and then they run it through metagenomic transcription, which crumbles all the RNA, and they make they they dump the whole Lego set out onto the floor, and they build a virus, what they claim is a virus, excuse me, pardon me, they build what they claim is a virus out of essentially digital Lego. And they say, look, look, a virus, but nowhere have they ever shown that this thing that they've constructed matches a virus, came from a virus, in any way resembles a virus, or that it causes any disease. Mm -hmm. you, all you have to do is look at the studies and look at the science. This is not difficult. As Mike Yaden, former VP of Pfizer, who understands this, said, it's child's play once you understand it. Mm -hmm. You understand that your little Lego representation of the White House is not the White House. Right. But it would be but it would be as if it were black and had So <clears throat> this is a huge revelation and I I at that point uh was still unsure whether there was there was a virus. I had all of the intellectual information that I needed to understand that there wasn't, but my body was not convinced. It was a physical thing. And it was not until I went to an event up in Columbia County, about um, an, an hour northeast of here, where I met Tom Cowan and Andrew Kaufman, who on the same day that they met at this event, 
during the lockdown, it was it was illegal to gather in groups at this point. And we're gathering in this huge living room of this crazy roundhouse that looks like a Tyvek flying saucer. Imagine like a four-story round Tyvek covered with rotting Tyvek, but gorgeous on the inside. They just hadn't put the shingles on the outside. Put all the money on the fireplace and the, you know, the heating system. Mm-hmm. And spent the whole day there with 130 people who were hugging and kissing and eating food and chowing down and sitting crammed in and nobody masking and nobody social distancing and nobody gave a shit. Nice. And what I found out from that was no one got sick. There wasn't there were no symptoms of any kind. And then I stuck with that community for a year and a half. Nothing happened. No one ever got sick. And we were all completely flaunting all of the rules. Now, maybe we were protected because we were sitting around talking about virology, but I don't think that's how it works. And so after that first meeting, I realized, okay, this is complete bullshit. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that these people have been meeting for a year and no one's been sick and no one's wearing a mask and no one's taking vaccine. There wasn't the vaccine yet, but no one was going to take it. And we're sharing food and little kids are running around and the dogs and nothing's going on. So it was, that was at the in November of, of the first year, and a lot happened in November of 2020. There was a there was an external peer review of the World Health Organization's test, the Corman Drosten test that came out. It came out that New York State had no data on masks whatsoever. There was a study published in Nature showing there was no asymptomatic spread, a study of 9.5 million people in Wuhan, China. Every single person in Wuhan was tested using their bullshit PCR, but still, according to their version of the of the science, they could not get a single case of non-symptomatic transmission. So the entire story had fallen apart by the end of 2020, but no one cared. No one outside the immediate health freedom community, Mm -hmm. which was a thing, not anymore, it's gone. But then it was a very close, tight group of people working very hard to preserve their freedom and protect their children, basically. Mm-hmm. And from you know from there, I you know I had one of the biggest stories of my entire journalism career, and I I just kept developing it. And over the course of that year, I got better and better interviews. I mean, at the beginning, it, it I only had this feeling one other time that it was like trying to scale the Great Wall of China, and that was when the PCB story broke. Mm-hmm. And even that was easier because because there's all kinds of PCB activists all over the place. Right. When it came to the, this virus thing the 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 holdover was aids nobody wanted to talk about that scam Mm -hmm. till i found the right people but over the course of the year i broke into better and better like meeting celia farber was a big help Mm -hmm. i met celia farber at her birthday party 64 paces from my door someone used to date her sister Mm -hmm. and was in a band with her and so kind of finagled me into this birthday party of all of like eight people and I had a two-hour private audience, more or less, with Celia Farber, who broke down the whole AIDS story for me, explained exactly how this happened, what it was that what it was that killed people, what it was that killed people, and uh, and then I I got lucky. I got a virologist on the other side, the State University of New York at Buffalo, where I went, talked to me for two and a half hours. So I got I had this one conversation. No, this one extended conversation 
uh, for two and a half hours with a virologist on the other side who made all kinds of admissions. But when I finally understood what he really said, what he really said was we have no virus. We're putting it together like pages from a book, he said, metagenomics, metatranscranomics. I hate that word. I call it metagenomics. It's the assembly of a virus cold out of a bunch of shit, a bunch mm-hmm. of monkey pus and calf blood and cancer cells and all this stuff. And he admitted this. And finally, when I came back all the way around on the story, because I never just think I know something. This is really the difference between me and most other people who either actually work as journalists or think that they're journalists is that they think they they know things when they don't know them. Right. And I'm I'm ne- never really confident that I that I know something until I've reached a very very deep threshold and I've kind of scaled the mountain five different from five different directions. Mm-hmm. When I finally done that, I understood what Thomas Melendi meant when he said we're putting it together like pages from a book. He means we're assembling it like Lego. We don't really have this thing. We're just putting it together. And he implied that the he said outright. I don't have a recording. I had to take notes typing. I hadn't. I didn't. And I, I couldn't risk replacing the call. He would have understood what I was doing. Right. And it would have changed the energy of the call. Also, no, you've got to stop calling me. <clears throat> Hold on. Sorry about that, everyone. All good. Okay, so I I had this story a lot of ways. I I had this. I understood this from a lot of different angles. Can I just ask a quick question? So when he's telling you about putting it together like pages of a book, is he is there sheepishness or is there confidence in like this is how virology? Oh no, he's confident. He thinks I'm going to open a window. He thinks. I mean, this is this is SUNY Buffalo, kind of a B-rate Berkeley. Okay. I mean, I went there. The part, the parts I went to were, were pretty good, um, but scientifically, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a, uh, it's the B side of uh, of University of California at Berkeley. It's it's a research institution, and um, he thought it was great. Like he was completely confident. At first, he didn't want to talk to me because he recognized that I'm a vaccine skeptic. But I convinced him that I was open minded enough to talk to him. Okay. And so then it was August. August afternoon, no students were around. It was not busy, and I, 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 he talked for two and a half hours. So he was very confident in their science. Mm-hmm. They really could assemble a thing. They really could assemble a virus, essentially from thin air, and get away with calling it that. Now, I was also dimly aware, but caught on to her later, personally of Christine Massey's work mm-hmm. uh, in the Toronto area where she she has been uh, with a team of people around the world who speak other languages like Arabic writing freedom of information law requests to governments and institutions and 211 have have so far admitted they don't have a sample of this thing taken from a person mm. unanimously it's not like some say they have it and some say they don't all 211 say we have no such study we have no such paper documenting a sample taken from a person which Mm -hmm. which means that they have 
synthetic nucleotide technology, they call it mimic clinical specimen, CDC, contrived virus, CDC, and silico sequence, pretty much everyone. They've got all these words for it. And what they're doing is they're, they're taking this contrived virus or mimic clinical specimen or synthetic nucleotide technology, and they take that much of it, like 10 millionths of a meter, so small it makes a grain of dust look like Mount Rushmore, and they they look for that in the population but to find that whatever the hell that is it's nothing it's just a, it's basically random genetic code mm -hmm. they have to jack the test to cycle threshold 40 or 45 right when the absolute detection limit is 35 for a single molecule i don't know how they're i don't know how the scientific community is letting them get away with this anybody who understands the pcr understands that by the time you're past cycle 35, there is nothing in the substance in chemistry that's Avogadro's limit. Mm -hmm. The Avogadro's limit of, of the PCR is a single molecule at, at CT35. Mm -hmm. If someone, in other words, I'll say this a different way. If someone tests pos positive for COVID and the test was left on for 35 cycles, it means that the thing found a single molecule that it had to multiply by a trillion times to get the positive result mm -hmm. a trillion times and as carrie mullis said of, of hiv well if you got to magnify it a trillion times to even see it how dangerous can it be right so people believe in magic though this is this is spiritual issues people believe in magic and science has completely supplanted religion and it's all a bunch of uh, walking on water right now right but not only are they going up to 35, where they can only have a molecule, I mean, a one fragment of a molecule, not even the whole molecule, they're jacking it to 45. So when I finally started to really have like the parts of, and I'm still learning parts of it, because it's extremely complicated. The parts of the PCR broken down like into eight major steps. Mm -hmm. There's complete fraud at every single step. From the, is there even a contagion? What makes you think this is a contagion? How did you find it? How do you isolate it? How do you do this? How do you do that? Every single every single stage they're scanning. Mm -hmm. So this is what I got myself dragged into, and of course, going down the journey of this, I I was not you know going to turn back, and I I just kept getting bigger and bigger stories and interviews uh, including with a guy named Stephen Buston considered the world authority on on the PCR who 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 made an endless series of admissions against interest uh in in in, in, in countless countless ones not following the guidelines he wrote and published and was world famous for called the Mike guidelines um be, being part of the review panel for the Corman Drosten re, re, retraction defense at Euro Surveillance, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, a bit, it's a lot of baseball to explain all of this, but there's a war going on over the validity of the first study that produces a PCR test for the public for the World Health Organization, which is basically Gates, Tedros, Neil Ferguson, a whole, these a whole bunch of clowns. Mm -hmm. And he admits he's on this committee. This this interview hit big, and it was, but it hit big in the virology Twitterverse. Outside of the virology Twitterverse, it's extremely obscure. Right. 
but inside virology twitterverse it was huge because of all the admissions that he he made and tipped his hand and revealed that he hadn't read the salient parts of the study but called it a disgrace and all all this stuff and this was all you know i didn't even know what i was hearing like i didn't understand most of what he was saying until i sent it to i just put the recording out when we were done talking i i processed the recording and put it up on my server and just sent out the link to everyone Mm -hmm. and said, what do you think? And uh, like two hours later, a PCR expert was taking it apart minute by minute and a Twitter feed, one of those endless Twitter threads, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I agree with you at one minute and 30 seconds. And then that was it. And then for the next, you know, 50 tweets, it was a a breakdown of with timestamps of everything he said. So I realized what I had. And Again, just this, you know how this works. One, once you're in, you're in. And really, I was the only person on the story. Mm-hmm. There was, I did not have any competition as a journalist. There was not this whole Substack scene in 2020 and early 21 that there is today with, with a thousand horseshit experts who don't know anything. This whole minion of Steve Kirsch's who, who are just, they seem like they're smart and they seem to take the right side of certain issues, but, but th- th- then they're just pushing the, vi- the virus and the lab release theory and all this shit. And along the way, we disproven the lab release theory. The, one of the best lucky breaks I had was in, encountering Dr. Sam Bailey, mm-hmm. um, this New Zealand doctor who works as a team with her husband, who's kind of like the, the guy with the pick and shovel in in the back and she's the 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 articulate stunningly beautiful hilarious presenter on the front of the screen and they had me on the program twice I, what i didn't mention was i don't know if this is interesting to anyone but <laughs> hopefully um at the beginning i started doing a daily news chronology on march 3rd 2020 so we maintained a, a chronology capturing like between five and 10 articles a day. Mm-hmm. And from, so that's maintained to the present day at, and then from that, I built the world's only absolutely comprehensive chronology of SARS-CoV-2 going all the way back to 2006, mm-hmm. now counting the references back to the Spanish flu, which some of those articles in 06 reference back to the Spanish flu. But by the time they begin a piece I'm going to do soon is when when they begin this whole thing on January 1st, 2020, they have no test. They know they have no test. It gets 100% false positives. They've reported this. CDC admits it. Dartmouth Medical Center admits it where the accident happened. And uh, the New York Times interviewed numerous epidemiologists and PCR experts, biochemists who all concede this test can make 100% false positives. They have no contagion theory because they know that the Spanish flu is not contagious. Mm-hmm. They have. When journal- you say they know, who's the they? The health establishment, the press, the New York Times, the top science writers, okay. the CDC. Once something has come through Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center and been reported in the journals, it's public knowledge and everyone has a responsibility to know about it. So why is it that they're pretending not to know what they know? because they were driving another agenda. They were using the claim of a health emergency to do something completely unrelated to a health emergency. 
that was to create a lockdown and that and that was to do a, a, a essentially restructuring of the environment mm -hmm. to force this completely failed mrna technology onto the public they give these massive bailouts to the vaccine manufacturers to the tune of trillions to develop these things moderna goes from being nothing moderna is basically a zombie company at this point with this patent basically this concept for for mrna technology they're going to push this on the entire public and they they go from nothing going on no outbreak in china ever to on march 1st uh on march 1st 2020 no outbreaks in new york they shut down broad they shut down broadway and and by the end of march of 2020 they've got 4.4 billion people living under a lockdown or stay-at-home order they've got 4.4 more than half the world population under martial law but they have no test they have no virus they know that the thing is complete bullshit they know they had no outbreak in china they know none there's there's absolutely nothing going on mm -hmm. but they lock down half the planet so now here's the real story how did this happen why did this happen how is i think more interesting than the why the why is just a bunch of evil oligarchs mm -hmm. but the how is that the world had transformed since AIDS. They were able to make AIDS work. They were able to make a non-existent virus into a thing that was causing gay cancer that didn't exist. So when... AIDS is the same scam? Yes, very similar. They okay. scaled AIDS. They never had the HIV virus, none of them, HIV-1, HIV-2, simian immune deficiency virus, Kaposi uh, sarcoma, was never caused by AIDS. They admit this in 94. I didn't know this till I read it in a Celia Farber article from Harper's or something like that, that they took all the purple blotchy people, all the guys who were getting sick with the purple cancer that looked like a skin cancer, but was really a systemic cancer. Uh, they took that off the list of AIDS diseases in 1994, quietly. Very quietly. So I didn't, if I didn't know about it, damn. Yeah. Well, the first round were killed by a combination of, of um, drug use. I mean, we're talking about, you and I have probably done a little bit of drugs. We're talking about people who do more in a week than we've done in our whole lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And every, the diversity, and then using um, uh, antibiotics prophylactically to not get other alleged diseases and douching, i.e. rinsing their immune system out of their colon right. as part of their sex gig and then amylbutyl nitrate being used all night long on the dance floor and then all night all night long in bed this is basically metal polish mm. it's sold today as metal polish when you buy Whoa. it i've been looking into it to verify this well that was round one round two was azt and then round three is all the subsequent ones but it's dropped out of the news there there is no there's no outbreak. All they've got are people who test positive and a test that can get a hundred different false positives. Right. Okay. The HIV test can throw a hundred different false positives and the Western blot test, the, the supposedly better test is up to the judicial, the judgment of the lab technician of whether it's positive or negative. There's different scores in different countries. You could have HIV in India, but you don't have it in Africa. You have it in Africa, but you don't have it in the, you have it in Canada, but not in the United States. Mm -hmm very similar or the or the pcr which is not finding anything it's not it's not there is nothing to find mm -hmm. montagnier admitted they had never isolated the, the virus before he died it was a complete fraud right so they took but it, it worked well enough to move 
three quarters of a trillion dollars through Fauci. It worked well enough to create a massive antiviral industry. Wait, hold on. I, I, I'm going to interject way more money because of PEPFAR. PEPFAR being the giant money laundering for AIDS uh, oh. program that Fauci set up that is not subject to any auditing or oversight and has oopsie lost like millions and millions, if not billions and trillions of dollars. Sure. We're on the, yeah. definitely in the order of magnitude of hundreds of billions now. Right. Okay, so it's a bank. It's like a giant bank. Basically, Fa Fauci is just a mafia don who controls a huge amount of money. And so because the papers, the newspapers aren't doing their jobs, that's been a problem for a while. And they're all going with the scientific establishment. When did you see that start as a journalist where journalists just forgot how to do their jobs? Well, it wasn't so much that they forgot as it was, okay, when I, when I noticed it was when the when I learned in the early 90s about the New York Times fraudulent coverage of dioxin, because that was my chemical, right? PCBs and dioxin were my chemicals. Right. Really one thing, dioxin-like compounds. And um, they, they concluded with the CDC to create a series of uh, a six-part front-page series in the New York Times claiming that dioxin was really only as bad as sunbathing. This is at the bidding of, of the pulp and paper industry. And in, and what's very significant is in the five years leading up to that, there had been a worldwide call for papers on the toxicity of these chemicals. And the, the, the all the science was saying, no, you're an order of magnitude off on your toxicity. It's actually a thousand times worse than you're saying that it's not active in parts per billion, it's active in parts per trillion. So humans and their adipose tissue have between generally seven and 15 parts per trillion dioxins in their blood. And the New York Times completely reversed the story. That's a signature for the New York Times, getting the, their decimal points wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of their go-tos. Yeah, it's a go-to for misinformation and propaganda mm -hmm. is to get your decimal points wrong. But they, 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 they got a lot more than their decimal points wrong. To, to have a quote, attributed to the CDC saying this is only as bad as sunbathing with nothing behind it. When all the science went the other way, mm -hmm. all the science went the other way, that these minuscule amounts you're breathing in normal ambient air. Then when um, Celia wrote a, a, a kind of a contribution to um, a book for RFK Jr., who I'm no fan of, but Celia yeah. Why are you a fan of him? He's a virus pusher and he's pushing. He knows there's no virus. We've made it plain to him that there's no virus. He's got all the documents to know that. And, and furthermore, he is pushing the lab release theory, which has no basis in reality. So, the, I mean, I, I want to drill down on this and we can circle back or we could do it now. But there, like, there is this huge chasm in this community between virus, no virus, and there's not a lot of like, debate or intelligent discourse going on in the public sphere around mm. it it's kind of well and there's very very few people who are on uh what uh what what is affectionately known as team no virus there's not there's not and i'm the embedded journalist in that group i'm not a signer of the virus challenge 
I'm just the journalist in the room, like the journalist in the room at the trustees meeting or the city council, the planning right. board, I get to sit there with my notebook and ask some questions and, um, and, and do my own independent reporting. But there's only about maybe 15, 20 people in, involved and then hundreds, hundreds on the health freedom side who are saying the lockdowns are bad, the vaccine is bad, the, uh, the, the, uh, the test is bad, they can't say why it's bad. They don't, they, once they have to, when they say the test is bad, they've got to do a dance because the real reason the test is bad is there's no sample to test for. Right. So they try to say the test is bad, but then they do this thing that looks to me like they have two left shoes which are tied together and they're trying to do the tango. Right. And then they just keep falling down and getting up and no one notices. Reiner Fulmick falls down, Robert Kennedy falls down, Doug Biltree falls down. They're all just doing this contra dance. And what they they have routine pinata sessions on people like Sam Bailey or or Tom Cowan. Yeah, Team they, No Virus is demonized. Well, the other is like put on these pedestals of sainthood. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous, but I understand it. I mean, there's a lot of reaction formation going on and also all of their, their entire business model is based on the claim of a virus that doesn't exist. Right. So, so when you, you say business model, who's like, who in the health freedom community is, needs the virus to exist to support their business model? All of them, uh, pretty much all, all of them, but particularly Big Tree and RFK are moving millions of dollars through their organizations, mi millions of dollars. I mean, they make more in one day than I raise in a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they have to have an enemy. There has to be an enemy. It's very Osama bin Laden-ish. They have to have their enemy. And, and what's happened is that at the beginning of this, and really for about the first well into 2021, it was really the health freedom people against the government. Right. Now, the health freedom people have taken the government line, the fundamental government line, that there is a virus and that there is a lab release. Because the right. lab release comes, the lab release is a government theory in itself that was planted in these, my head man is riding up. Um, the, the, the lab release was planted in the British tabloids in the spring of 2020, a picture of a freezer and it leaked. Here's the crack in the freezer. It leaked out. You know, if you know anything about this stuff, if it even exists, it, it could not withstand freezing in a, in a kitchen freezer. It wouldn't last overnight. It's so, if what they're saying is true about it, it's so fragile that you, you can break it by looking at it. Right. So they're claiming that it leaked out of this freezer and they've got the pictures looking like wedding photos, like staged photos, practically, you know, the look, there it is. The sun, Soraway sun or BBC one misinformation is a weapon of mass destruction. Soraway sun has the picture of the freezer. They've got the crack in the freezer. This is like in May or April of 2020. Mm -hmm. The lab release is a government theory. They, they start the outbreak in Wuhan the claim of an outbreak in Wuhan because the virology lab is there. Two of them, BSL-3 and BSL-4. That's why Wuhan got the Olympics. They got the Olympics, the, meaning the Olympics of the virus, because they have the labs there. And when the wet market theory fell apart, which it had fallen apart by March, the Lancet published the article saying, no, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. But they're also like, this can't be a lab release. They're getting 100 scientists to sign on the thing like the Nazis did against Einstein. Now, the Lancet is the capital of the lab release theory. 
Oy, oy, oy. So the now it's little Kleine Fauci's. In, in, in Germany, they use the term Kleine Hitler, meaning little Hitler. So it's Kleine Fauci's all over the place. They're all taking the same basic viewpoint that the CDC was taking. There is an outbreak. There is a virus. The test picks up some positives. There's validity to metagenomics. But this is the people who are supposedly fighting for our freedom. Well, so what did they flip? Were they dirty all along? Is it are they being paid? Um, this all should be investigated. There, you know, we're, I've personally put the most pressure on RFK Jr. Uh, I, I, um, I, I'm not looking for the right word. Asked him a question in a very crowded room mm-hmm. at a fundraising event in Greenwich, Connecticut in April of 2022, where I, I said that, uh, you know, 200 at that time 180 governments have admitted they don't have any of this stuff now it is game over when the government say they don't have it mm-hmm. i mean just from a legal scientific and moral perspective when the governments themselves including nine separate responses from the cdc nine i just went through them on sunday mm-hmm. nine separate responses from the cdc all admit they don't have a sample it is game over there is none it doesn't exist then why are we still playing this game Right. Part of why we're playing the game is because guys like RFK and Dell Bigtree are pushing this narrative. Now, why are they pushing the narrative? Now we have to ask ourselves why. Now, I, I can't um, exactly say that they're controlled opposition because I don't have it on paper. Right. I, as a journalist, I, 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 I used to keep a box here for these podcasts. So just imagine a large carton of materials that's now in storage i don't have to live with it anymore where i would pat my little carton and say yes we we actual investigative journalists like to have things on paper right nice carton nice 40 pounds of documents